Have you ever heard of Rachel Carlson before? She's one of the most important writers who indirectly shaped how you, I, and many people in the West view industrial agriculture. Many would date the beginning of the modern environmental movement to September 1962, when Carson's book Silent Spring began to roll off the presses. I will read you a short version of the beginning of this iconic book, one of the most important pieces of writing that asks us to reconsider the way we use chemicals in agriculture. I quote, There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to be in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms, with fields of grain and hillsides of orchards, where white clouds of bloom drifted above the green land. Even in winter, the roadsides were places of beauty, where countless birds came to feed on the berries and on the seed heads of dried weeds rising above the snow. The countryside was, in fact, famous for the abundance and variety of its bird life. Then, one spring, a strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flock of chickens and the cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was the shadow of death. The farmers told of much illness amongst their families and the town the doctors were becoming more and more puzzled by new kinds of sicknesses that had appeared amongst their patients. The birds, where had they gone? It was a spring without voices. In the mornings, here was no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marshes. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chicks hatched. The apple trees were coming into bloom, but no bees droned amongst the blossoms, so there was no pollination and there would be no fruit. No witchcraft, no enemy action had snuffed out life in this stricken world. The people had done it themselves. This town does not actually exist. I know of no community that has experienced all the misfortunes I describe, yet every one of them has actually happened somewhere in the world. And many communities have already suffered a substantial number of them. It is only within the moment of time represented by the 20th century that one species, man, has acquired significant power to alter the nature of this world. And it is only within the last 25 years that this power has achieved such magnitude that it endangers the whole earth and its life. The most alarming of all man's assaults upon this environment is the contamination of the air, earth, river and seas with dangerous and even lethal materials. It is less well known that many man-made chemicals act in much the same way as radiation. They lie long in the soil and enter into living organisms passing from one to the other. As Albert Schweitzer had said, man can hardly even recognize the devils of his own creation. End quote. Rachel Carson had warned us about the overuse of pesticides particularly DDT, which was banned a couple years after she published this book. 
Mark Linus, an author whose book we will actually be discussing in this episode called Seeds of Science, has surprisingly covered Rachel Carson and argued that the enduring importance of her book can hardly be overstated. Carlson was a true pioneer. Not only was she the first to bring the direct biological damage from pesticides to the wider attention of society, she was also ahead of her time in the way she wrote about the complex dynamics and interrelatedness of ecosystems, end quote. And of course, that did come with a cost. She experienced a lot of whiplash from the major pesticide and agrochemical producers, including Monsanto. They were buying print ads, threatening to sue the publisher and supporters of Carson, and just generally using every strategy in the book to tear down her writing and position her as hysteric and far-fetched. If you think of these as two extremes of the debate, we can see a very pro-tech movement on the one side that is not considering the ecological effects. And on the other extreme of the debate, we would see this blind ecologist who is completely against pesticides, fertilizers, and industrial agriculture and just wants to go back in time and not use any of it. And interestingly, Carlson was neither of those. She was not an extremist. I quote Mark Lunas again on page 84. The fierceness of the industry's assault was belied by the rather moderate nature of Rachel Carlson's own views. She did not argue for total elimination of pesticides, even DDT, acknowledging that insect populations needed to be managed for successful food production and disease control. Nor did she argue that insect pests should be left to run rampant across America's defenseless cornfields. One of her strongest arguments against the overuse of pesticides was that their very usefulness was being wasted because of the rapid evolution of resistance in insect pest populations. Practical advice should be spray as little as you can rather than spray to the limits of your capacity. The work of Rachel Carson has shaped the public's view on modern agriculture significantly, and it has created an awareness that we aren't separate from nature, and that what goes around comes around. Now, in this episode, we will again focus on genetic modification, and it will be the last one that focuses on that topic. And you may wonder, how is that connected now to GM? Monsanto and many other agrochemical companies got into huge PR trouble due to Carson. When modified crops were introduced 30 years later, the news landed on, he could say, fertilized ground, blooming into a lot of ugly media attention. In this episode, we talk about the nature of the debate about genetic engineering, because we need to recognize that this is a debate that is not just about the technology itself, but it is actually about two completely different ideologies of how we can look at agriculture. On the one side, we have this technocratic approach of fixing individual broken parts of the system with better methods, better seeds, better inputs. And on the other hand, there is a completely different archetype, the agroecologist, who sees biodiversity as a priority and how everything is interconnected. In this episode, 
we're gonna kick it off by discussing topics like GM labeling, how to think of agriculture as a system instead of looking at solutions individually, and whether positioning anti-GMO activists as anti-science is fair or not. My co-host Frank Kühne is the managing director of the Adelbert Raps Foundation, funding food science research for sustainable future of food. And he is also chief of advisory board at the Raps GmbH, a spice and herb producer. I'm Marina, a science and technology historian focused on agriculture and food. To get an introduction to GM and pesticides, consider checking out episodes 7.7 till 7.9. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food sustainability. And in this season seven, we discuss key takeaways from books on the food system. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Frank Kühne. It really reminds me again, this whole topic on season three, which was on promoting alternative proteins and my talk with Charlotte Biltikoff, who was like, it's It is about people's trust in the system. And if the company that's spearheading a technology in this case has repeatedly abused people's trust in that way that they knew things were really toxic, they kept on producing them. And the regulation mm. is always playing a catch-up game. And that's, I think, what people are aware of and what they feel uneasy about. It's a yes. bit... Did I ever tell you that? I feel like it's similar like in the drug market, you know, LSD was banned, people start producing some kind of designer variant, like 1P LSD, so somehow change the molecule a bit, then it's legal for a while until regulation catches up and says like, oh no, this is also not okay. And then it, it gets edited again. And it's a bit in a similar way with, yeah, any kind of catch-up game with toxicology until we realized that DDT is crazy toxic pesticide. It was just sprayed publicly Bad. on the streets to combat malaria. And it's so complex because you always need to think about, okay, what's the potential upside? Right. What's the downside? What are the alternatives? And how do you weigh the risk? Do you weigh the risk in terms of worst potential thing that could happen? Or do you say sort of, Uh, if some people die, that's part of the game, right? It's a lot about the ethical underlying structure that one follows. Ah, it's just a big, it's a big mind puzzle in a way. And also, to some extent, I think a bit of a personal decision because it's not just about the technology in this case. It's also about who has the most influence in mm. it. It's a bit of a pity, let's say, that that this technology was so much influenced or is so much tied to a certain company, which just does not create a lot of trust. And so it's important to consider this context, but it's also then important, I think, to say, but the technology itself, it's tool, right? So it can be used for positive and it can be used for negative, can be used and it can be abused. And Mark Luna's book definitely also showed me both sides are extreme a bit, right? And both sides are a bit irrational in their way. I think the pro-GMO deregulate everything, just like let's engineer everything. That's a bit an extreme. And the burn down every field trial and disrupt any kind of uh, research in this area, that's also very extreme. And his book has a few good examples where it seemed to actually help the community possibly to have 
BT papayas that are resistant to a certain disease that just completely destroys all the harvests. But then Greenpeace or some organization comes in and burns down the fields or, or destroys the fields and boycotts that development. Um, case by case basis, again, it's the question, okay, who was funding this, was profiting from this? But also, is there enough toxicology research done? Does the community want that? But that's exactly the point. But there was a theory he was introducing that the decision of the consumer is being influenced by the narrative he lives in. And he criticizes in his book that there's a very much non-GMO activist influenced narrative in the consumer's mind, which is not an informed and fact-based opinion about GMO, but rather more story-based, narrative, myth-based decision made by the consumer. And then if you put a label onto the product, which I agree should be done, but if you put a label on a product... And the same time, have a consumer which has not an, a knowledge-based opinion about GMO, this whole thing turns into the wrong direction. It basically says, okay, I believe GMO is bad, so I don't buy a GMO modif like a GMO product yeah. or GMO-containing product. But what anymore. is the alternative? Yeah, let's educate people. <laughs> Listen to the podcast of Marina and... <laughs> And get understanding about all yeah, the GMO. If, the know, next season uh, is going to be... A non-biased <laughs> NGO that wants to fund a season on genetic engineering and GMOs, please let me know. Then we can solve this. <laughs> At this moment, I think I have more questions than I have answers. Well, that's a, that's a state of knowledge. Yeah? If you start to understand things, you will get more questions than answers. Yeah. I do not want to say that anything that right now I'm saying in this podcast about GMOs is like a fixed believe everything I read on GMOs, I feel everything needs like a triple check, like a triple check of is this piece of information factual yeah. and yeah. in what kind of framework and what kind of belief system is it located? Yeah, yeah I would love to, I would love to talk about yeah, the belief system behind yeah. GMOs because I do think a debate between we do intensive monocrop, large scale agriculture Versus, and he says that himself here, a quote from his talk, these GMO activists who are into organic and agroecology. So it's, these are like the two yeah. big camps yeah. which are sort of battling each other, like go back to nature, go stop being in the past, go forward into technology. And the belief system of GMOs is we need a technocratic solution to fix the world's problems. I think it's neither the highly industrialized agriculture system nor the more regenerative, closer to nature system. It's something in between. We have to admit there's going to be some kind of industrialized agriculture system to feed everybody. And that's the reason why I think we need to talk about the GMO crops and about the opportunities they have. And at the same time, we need to talk about the liability that comes along with those kind of crops. I can see the fight going on. Like, and GMO is perhaps only one battleground of the bigger war we're fighting here, which is industry versus nature approach living. I might have said that in another discussion. I don't and I don't want to imagine a world where we're going to step back and kind you don't of stone age sit, time. sit in a cave? That's weird. Um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It is weird, I know, but, you know, like the discussions is kind of pittoresque. Sorry, it's a bit of a French here coming through, like this kind of 
pinkish painted picture of, oh, we're going to have our own fields and there's going to be farmer all over the world and they're going to have these little plots and they're going to grow their own stuff on a regional base and they're going to do it by hand and they're not going to use pesticides and they're going to use fertilizer and so on. And I think if you honestly go down this road and then go away from the narrative, which is kind of nice, and then actually put numbers behind that, how many workers you would need, how would be the impact on a family that, like who would work in the family, who would work on the field, and what impact will that have on the wealth of the society we're in right at the moment? I think it's getting quickly very unattractive, a setup of our society, of our, our system we want to go into. I'd rather go, let's go further into the future and at the same time, balance that kind of development to make sure it's not harming our planet. This is a very good opportunity to point out the importance of independent research. The Adalbert Raps Foundation offers grants for food science research that is focused on sustainability. That can be in alternative proteins, food waste, biotech, all of the topics that can help practically improve our food system. They do fund a lot of research in Europe, but it is also possible to apply if you're outside of Europe. So this is really a hot tip. The Adalbert Raps Foundation is pretty unique in terms of how much budget they have to fund scientific research. The foundation can only sponsor universities or research institutions. So if you are a startup founder, you would then work with a research institution on a topic that relates to your business, for example, and benefit from having the insights, but not having to fund the research yourself. Just Google the Adalbert Raps Foundation or follow the link in the comments to find out more. You can also just directly reach out to Frank. And with that, back to the episode. And actually, I think it would help a lot if there would be GM labeling, because that's relevant also for people as like, hey, I want to know what's in my food and I want to be able to make up my own mind about whether I want to eat it or not. So please just let me know. Let it help me to make that decision. Otherwise, it's uninformed and it's, it's not consensual, therefore, because consent needs to be informed. I like the example of... Very preaching. I, right. I once read this book called Meat, a History of Industrialization. It's by a German professor. And I love his example that, so there used to be a time when meat was grown in Berlin, in the cities. The whole process of raising cattle, to slaughtering mm -hmm. it, to selling it, that was very much close to people in the city. And as the cities became more dense and it just became very unhygienic to do that, the whole uh, agricultural side was moved to the south of Germany. But the meat consumption and the development mm -hmm. of transport mm -hmm. went hand in hand. So you started to create this super intricate system that's mm -hmm. very time dependent. Because once you slaughter a cow, it, the time is running. So you needed a very good train lines to make the system work. And they would have the main lines, which would actually be the cash cows. And the great thing is that they were thinking in system, right? They were not thinking in individual lines. They were thinking of it as a whole transport system for the industry. So the main lines would actually be the ones that are giving cash. And then there would be secondary and tertiary train lines, which usually they would make losses. So if you would just look at them individually, you would be like, this train line doesn't make sense. But if you look at the system, you would see it's actually necessary it's because yeah. if one of the main lines doesn't work for whatever reason, 
the losses, the potential cost of this would be so high that it would be devastating. So you need these secondary and tertiary alliance. And with that in mind, it is sensible. That is something to apply to the thinking, like if we, to think of any kind of complex industry, right? where if you just zoom in too much into one kind of solution, and you're like, oh, I look at regenerative agriculture. And if we would scale regenerative agriculture to the entire world, it wouldn't feed the population. But that is faulty logic because you would you would never yeah, have one kind yeah. of agricultural system copy-pasted amongst all nations, amongst all cultures, amongst all crops. It's just misleading. So the yeah. belief system needs, needs yeah. to be, okay, mm. if we do large-scale monoculture, well, that's crappy if you would do everything with that. It may make sense for part of the system because then you just need to produce feed. But then regenerative agriculture could balance out soil health here and there. And then vertical farming is damped because of energy prices, but maybe for food security in very hot places that could make sense. And as a portfolio, they make sense because the downsides of one are balanced out by the upsides of the other. And overall, it creates a good benefit yeah. ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Great. Just as a side note, vertical farming refers to a specific type of indoor farming, where you, for example, have towers or lots of different racks in which plants are growing. It's a highly industrialized form of agriculture. And regenerative agriculture is the opposite of this, where you are trying to build an ecological system that is more in line with nature. The one thing I had in my mind is because you were mm. talking about the monopole of the big players in GMO crops and how they kind of influence the direction it goes and how it's being seen or how they try to influence the way it's being seen. I was actually wondering with all the new technology coming into play over the last decade and we're going to see developing over the next decades if it's not more if GMOs are be becoming more democratized with CRISPR and, and other technologies it's becoming so much easier to play around with organisms and their genes that, yes, with patents and the amount of research, these big companies can create new things. In the same time, there's going to be so many more new players in the field and big companies won't be able to cover all these fields. So they're going to be attacked from all kinds, from all, yeah, and all then they over just the world with new solutions <laughs> they haven't covered or thought about it. But I think there's going to be so many players in the field that, that at one point they basically said, okay, we can't buy the whole world. Yeah. It is true that, for example, the first GMO patents yeah. are running out. So they only last for 20 years. There's really something to consider. Yeah. And so in 2018, the first GM patents already had begun to expire and are now considered as off-patent events. And if I think back to... In the biotech season, for yeah. example, I talked to the founder of Miruku, that is a New Zealand-based startup that grows milk proteins in plants. Well, that's a startup, right? So he must have the ability now to, to be able to do that. And part of mm, what exactly. is helping for sure is that Google launched AlphaFold, which is a database of protein folding that is supporting this this development because otherwise it would be very, very hard to grow proteins and plants. I watched a talk by Mark yeah. Lunas that I think came out like four years ago. And 
Interestingly, in his book, he argues that, oh, calling people who are against GMOs anti-science, I can see how that is maybe a bit far-fetched. But then in the talk, which came out after his book, he does call people anti-science who are critical about GMOs. And he puts them into the same bucket as people who are anti-vaccines and who are climate deniers. And I think that's a slippery slope. And he has the rebuttal to that also in this book, just like if you call people anti-science who are against any kind of use of nuclear, including nuclear weapons, then you're anti-science because science came up with that, right? I just feel like that's one thing to watch out for, the group think or just in general, oh, people are critical of something. People are trying to figure out, is this good for me? Is this safe? Do I like the system? Do I want to support the system? To put any kind of criticism of something into the camp, oh, you are anti-technology, you are anti-science, you're like living in the dark ages. And this is also something, the parallels that we will see with cellular agriculture. It made me actually much more empathetic to people who are super critical of and skeptical of cell-based meat because skeptical. I have this feeling uh, uh. Well, when I learn about GMOs, which doesn't mean I'm anti-GMO, right? Important. And I think it has valid applications if regulated well and mm -hmm. if for the right purpose. And uh. I can understand that people are like, oh, cultured meat sounds sketchy. And I would like for it to be very clearly labeled that this is cultured meat. The big difference, I think, is that GMOs sort of slip in to the industry much more because it's corn, it's maize, it's sometimes, let's say you have GM soy, yeah, no. you have GM maize that sort of slips into yeah. to anything that's processed. And if you're living in the US, for example, that sort of is just a hidden part of the food system that is there. With cultured meat, mm. it would be an active decision to be like, I'm going to buy this piece of cultured meat and it's clearly labeled that this is cultured meat. Right. So that I find much more consensual. A side note, cultured meat refers to a process of growing meat from cells. So instead of growing the entire cow, you would just grow what you actually want to eat. And we have an entire season on this. Check out season one on cellular agriculture or season three if you're interested in the consumer acceptance. The only thing I'm, I'm bringing up again at that point is I want to have the consumer be with a more informed base for that decision. I can see the base for that decision. I'd like, like, I can see that you, after I've read the books, you have been not sanitized. Finally, I took a shower. <laughs> you have Thanks. been sanitized? No, sorry. You have been, yeah. <laughs> no, you have been sensitized. Sorry. Oh, you Friday had a hard afternoon. week. Okay, guys. This, this uh, has been a hard week for I have been enlightened. <laughs> Enlightened, yeah, you have to, sorry, Marina has been enlightened with a more, like, more, she's more conscious about the pros and cons of GMO, and I think you can make a more of a good decision for yourself. I'm really afraid of this narrative story about GMO is bad, and because of that, I oppose it and ask policymakers to really block it or not allow GMO. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't label a product with uh, GMO. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you have the choice to eat organic maize and to eat you maize, which one would you eat? Yeah, that is an easy one. I would only, always go for the organic maize, always. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that is an easy one. I want to put you in another a spot yeah. if there's only GM maize, yeah? yeah? What are you going to do? 
So are you going to eat GMO maize, yes or no? Yeah, but like yeah. if my alternative would be to be hungry, <laughs> I, I'm more worried about other yeah, people. I get yeah, really yeah. hangry. I'm just doing it for the social good. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. They're not going to force you to eat the GMAs. Yeah? So Marina, what do you think about the book? Is it going to be put on your book list? Okay. Somebody in the reviews of this book said it. If you want to understand... GMO technology, this is definitely not the right book. It feels pretty much like actually misrepresented. If you want to learn about the history of the anti-GMO movement, a little bit of that is covered there. It sort of becomes more interesting in the middle of the book. And I think we covered a lot of his pro-GMO arguments. He focuses a lot on Africa and oh, if the anti-GMO movement wouldn't be there, then it would have already made everything much healthier and good. But it's, it seems to me like... Be um, good and better. I think most people in the biotech space don't need to read it. If you are anti-GMO, oh. it may be interesting to, to have a different view, but I would take it with a grain of salt. You? Yeah. When I was listening to you, I think the one thing is my expectation was really have an introduction about GMO in the food system and not this very narrow story he's telling about GM crops. I would have expected a broader picture, a more general explanation. And honestly, I think it's the first book which I wouldn't recommend to read. You made a good point when you said, if you are anti-GMO, yes, you should yes. read yeah. the book. Because that's looking your opponent into the eye and trying to understand what he thinks and how he argues. And that might be interesting always to, I think that's always good. Yeah. But I hope there are better books to explain GMO in the food system. I think that listening to this podcast and have following our discussions and perhaps on center discussions, you could learn two hours the same as what you would take out of the book. As you maybe already know, every season we have a different topic. We sometimes also have a different format. So maybe there are also other seasons of Red to Green that are relevant for you. For example, our last one on biotech and food, or season five, covering the history of food, or season four, where we look at food waste covering the entire supply chain. Frank and I would love to hear from you, so don't hesitate to reach out to move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. 